welcome to this week's podcast version of Scripps 5 Must Know Things, this time for the Business Week ended 25th June 2021. This is Ian Haydock. In this episode, a look at Pharma CEO pay, Pfizer's CEO gives the inside track on COVID vaccine development, GSK talks restructuring and strategic plans, and Kite tells us about its cell therapy plans under Gilead. The average CEO compensation package among the world's biggest pharma companies was $17.7 million in 2020, 142 times that of the average employee remuneration. Alex Gorski, CEO of Johnson & Johnson, was the best-paid CEO of the 17 largest pharma companies in 2022, with a total compensation package of $29.6 million. J&J's Paul Stoffels was the best-paid R&D head, booking $16.4 million. The J&J executives saw double-digit percentage increases in their packages, even though the company missed its financial targets, which were set before the world succumbed to the coronavirus. Elena Malone writes in this infographic article that base salary made up just 6% of Gorski's total compensation at $1.65 million, which was unchanged from 2019. The rest came from annual and long-term incentives and change in pension values, mostly in equity. This split is fairly typical among CEO compensation packages. Scripps' annual review of executive compensation at leading pharma companies for the first time includes Takeda, which rose up the ranks of the big pharma league table with its acquisition of Shire in early 2019, and Novo Nordisk, whose revenues also justify its presence in the list. The CEOs of this expanded list of 17 companies booked $300.7 million in total base salaries, bonuses and long-term incentives between them, while their companies generated combined revenues of $685 billion. Five of the 17 companies saw their revenues decline in 2020 and five CEOs saw their compensation decrease. Declining revenues did not correlate very closely to CEO pay though, and do take a look at the article for further illustrated breakdowns. Pfizer's shaping of its own Operation Warp Speed while developing a COVID-19 vaccine is a fascinating story of trust, commitment and organisational preparedness, one well narrated by CEO and Chairman Albert Baller at the USA India Chamber of Commerce's annual Biopharma and Healthcare Summit. With the world collapsing in front of us on account of the pandemic, he realised this was above and beyond the future of Pfizer. And I knew that if we are successful, we will be able to contribute to the world and what is needed. And if we fail, we have bigger worries because the whole world would be in a mess. On the advice of his scientists, a SARS-CoV-2 vaccine partnership with BioNTech was set in motion in the most unconventional manner, Baller told Stelios Papadopoulos, Biogen CEO, who conducted the fireside chat on 22nd June. Though the two companies were working since 2018 on an influenza vaccine using the now revolutionary mRNA technology, Baller personally didn't know the management, so he placed a call to BioNTech founder and CEO Ugo Sahin. It was a very, very pivotal moment, and we hit it off. We discussed on principles rather than on what we're going to do, and then he talked to me about his life, and then I talked to him about my life, and we decided to call again. At some point, I told him, if we are to do something like that, time is of the essence. It's going to be very challenging to put together all the legal documents in the contract, and if we start after that, we're going to miss the train. He said, 
Maybe we start and worry about the contract later. So we started working immediately, Baller said. Viba Ravi writes that watertight contracts are the norm before moving ahead on a deal. But BioNTech transferred the technical know-how to Pfizer the next day, even though a letter of intent was signed three weeks later as Pfizer's lawyers were having a heart attack and we were exchanging all this information without a legal, formal document, Abula said. The two companies signed a formal commercial agreement only in January 2021, a month after their mRNA vaccine, now known as Comirnaty, received an emergency use authorization from the US FDA. The CEO also acknowledged Pfizer's employees, who showed just 1% absenteeism despite the pandemic, as they knew their work affects lives. Emphasising the role played by the US FDA, Buller said it didn't get the credit it deserves. Agency officials were equal heroes as they conducted overnight inspections, conveying feedback quickly. Buller also said that Pfizer had earlier brought in new talent under previous CEO Ian Reid, particularly in digital technology. He said, I don't think we would be near the speed to conclude the study if we hadn't made all this investment in infrastructure a year and a half before. GlaxoSmithKline has unveiled its strategy for growth over the next 10 years, arguing it can achieve a compound annual growth rate of more than 5% in revenues and 10% in profits based on a new wave of innovative products. Key to that strategy is a spin-out of the company's consumer health division, set to take place in mid-2022, which will leave behind a new DSK focused on vaccines and specialty medicines and more able to invest in research and M&A. The company needs to win over sceptical investors, though, who have seen GSK's share price underperform the market and fall by 15% since Dame Emma Wormsley took over as CEO four years ago. This executive set out the vision in an extended virtual investor presentation on 23rd June, highlighting potential blockbusters such as its respiratory syncytial virus vaccine candidates, newly launched myeloma drug Blenrep, and long-acting HIV therapy Cabuneva. The company also underlined its investment in mRNA vaccine platforms, where it's looking to catch up with the frontrunners Pfizer and Moderna and others. The £33 billion or $46 billion revenue target by 2031 hit a set for the slimmed-down company is ambitious given the patent expiry of HIV blockbuster TVK in 2028-29 and the company's poor recent track record in R&D and commercial performance. Andrew McConaughey reports that in recent months GSK has come under pressure from activist investor Elliott Management, which has pushed for radical change at the company, including calling for Wormsley to be replaced by a more experienced pharma executive and for the vaccines division to also be spun out into a separate company. But Wormsley said sharper decision-making and execution was now in place across the company, moving it from historical underperformance to a new, ambitious, top-quartile growth outlook. The company also unveiled its much-anticipated plans for spinning out its consumer health division, which the company and investors hope will unlock value in the new streamlined operation. GSK will use a demerger to spin out at least 80% of GSK's 68% holding in the consumer healthcare business, which is a joint venture with Pfizer, to GSK shareholders, while retaining the remaining 20% to sell at a profit at a later date. Staying with GSK, Jessica Mellor writes that, despite missing the first COVID-19 vaccine wave, the UK-based firm hopes to ride the cresting interest in the vaccine sector as it looks to launch five new vaccines by 2026, management said during an investor overview on 23rd June. 
The growth outlook for vaccines centres on the expansion of its blockbuster Shingrix shingles vaccine, building out the meningitis franchise, and the launch of adult and maternal vaccines for respiratory syncytial virus, a potential multi-billion dollar commercial opportunity. It's unsurprising that GSK is doubling down on vaccines as a portfolio priority given the company's decades of investment in the space, which is now buttressed by renewed interest in the area as a whole as a critical contributor to public health following the COVID-19 crisis. mRNA-based vaccines' success in COVID-19 has led GSK to expand its investment in mRNA technology. The company announced a new flu strategy as part of that investment and also has an eye on other commercial prizes. We have the industry's leading pipeline with multiple potentially first and best-in-class assets and 16 assets in mid- and late-stage development, Vaccines President Roger Connor said. We are planning five new launches by 2026, the most important of which is our vaccine for RSV in older adults. In addition to the RSV vaccine, which will launch into a $5 billion commercial opportunity, The other potential new launches by 2026 include a maternal RSV vaccine to protect newborns, a panvalent meningitis vaccine, a next-generation COVID-19 vaccine booster and an MMR vaccine. Finally, Kite Pharma CEO Christy Shaw is optimistic about parents Gilead Sciences maintaining a leadership position in cancer cell therapy especially as its second CAR-T therapy, Tocatus, appears poised for expansion in B-cell acute lymphoblastic leukaemia. In an interview with Scripps' Joseph Haas, Shaw highlighted data recently presented at the ASCO meeting as evidence of Kite's expansion and commitment to cell therapy. The company's announcement of an alliance with Shoreline Biosciences on 18th June after the interview on CAR natural killer cell therapies and targeted macrophages is evidence of how aggressive Kite and Gilead are being about staying on the cutting edge of the field with allogeneic, off-the-shelf, standardised cell therapy. The partnership is worth up to $2.3 billion and will initially focus on CAR-NK targets for a range of hematologic malignancies. Kite expects to unveil five-year data later this year for Zuma-1, the pivotal trial that backed the approval of its first CAR-T, Yescata, in 2017. Our four-year data showed that 44% of our patients were still alive, said Shaw, when normally you're told you have three to six months to live when you're at the end stage of lymphoma. As for the capabilities, Shaw maintained Kite has quicker turnaround time versus its competition for manufacturing its autologous CAR-T therapeutics and a higher success rate, factors of literally vital importance to patients, she said. Scale also matters. We have two brands and three indications, the exec noted. We have the most indications and more than one brand available, so we are leading the market in that regard. We also have the opportunity for potentially two more indications in the next 12 months. Gilead acquired privately held Kite for $11.9 billion in August 2017, just months ahead of the October approval of Yescata in relapsed or refractory large B-cell lymphoma. That's all for this week. Thank you as always for listening. And don't forget to sign in to access these stories in full, which are also linked in the article accompanying this podcast. Or do consider a free trial if you're not a subscriber to see what you're missing. Bye for now.